My name is Benjamin Walker. You're listening to Too Much Information. It is the first episode of the brand new show, and our first guest is actually the guy who used to be in this very slot on WFMU at this time. Welcome back to WFMU, Douglas Rushkoff. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, it feels kind of like a full circle thing because when you left this slot in November of 2009 is what I remember seeing the email thread and I was like, oh yeah, I got to do a talk show because I was doing the music show in the morning and it, was, it led to this whole shift and that's how I ended up in the six o'clock <laughs> thing on Monday. And now we've come around and uh, we're here together. And Monday at six o'clock is a, is a special, special time. It just is. Just in the contours of the temporal landscape. It, it's a, it's, we've got a notch in here now. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's scored with something <laughs> special, I think, now. Um, so, uh, and, and it's kind of the beginning of a new uh, reboot, I guess, if I have to use mm -hmm. that, that dreadful word, in that now I'm going to try to actually stick with one person for a whole hour, which means you have to find people that can actually do it, and which is why God, I kind of turn to you. In the, in the current culture, that's almost like a, a, a marriage, <laughs> a, a whole hour with one person. Did you ever do that? Were you ever pull off? I got you? married. Yeah, but, no. <laughs> but you had a few guests on that you would oh, have for yeah. a whole hour. Yeah. I mean, kind of celebrity or hero or somebody, yeah. you know, Paul Krasner, Are You Serious? Or, you know, Robert Anton Wilson, that kind of thing. I remember some of those episodes and it seemed like they would they would last an hour. But did you ever have someone on thinking like, oh, this could be two hours, this could be three hours, and then you find out that you actually, <laughs> about 20 minutes in, it's, it's about as long as it can go? Yeah, it, well, interestingly, I mean, I, I never really ran out with somebody, but there were one or two, I guess they should remain nameless, that yeah. like we don't 10 need, or 15, we don't need to shame them here. 10 or 15 minutes in, I kind of realized, oh, they say this one thing. And they just keep saying this one thing, you know, and and it became my job then to kind of in interrogate them on some other level mm -hmm. to go either meta or to flip it around to turn it over. You know, it was it was for me as much about trying to break whatever their standard style of conversation is and then unearth new ground. And sometimes that really just meant, you know, really kind of challenging their their core uh, underlying assumptions in yeah. order to, to get to new stuff. So usually I push through, but one or two times I just was like, oh, God. Well, we're here today to talk about your new book, which is called Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now. And I'm seeing a lot of really rave reviews everywhere. The book seems to be everywhere, and it seems that you've been talking about it everywhere. So, I mean, to, to give that uh, unnamed guest uh, a little bit of benefit of the doubt, it does seem, though, that if you are promoting something, that is kind of your job to talk about that one it thing. It is, but over I think over. if you're doing live radio in real time with another human being in the space, then the the that imperative really outweighs the imperative of me to sell the book in mm -hmm. ways I know how to sell it. You know, you know, don't tell the the publicists at, at you know Penguin this, but we're talking about radio. So what does Present Shock become about for me? Is live, real time terrestrial radio. You know, what is that to be in someone's car, in someone's house, yeah. with their voice moving their body? What is it when kids now are walking down the street, you know, with MP3 earbuds in? They're not listening to music, right? They're listening to some algorithm that's imitating <laughs> music. I mean, so it's like a whole new array of subjects kind of comes to comes to mind for me. Yeah, and, and, and in, a, in a way, the live radio is perhaps one of the most positive examples I can think of for this idea of the now. But I, but I want to come and hit on a lot of those things you actually just talked about. But I wanted to start with this uh, idea that I've had for a while. I was very excited to when I even heard about your book coming out because I felt personally, sort of the, this tyranny of the now starting to, to, to creep up on me. And, and it seems that on the one hand, we've been watching this coming for a while, right? We've, we've, we've been watching this speed up right before our eyes. We've seen weekly magazines lose power to nightly TV news shows. And then CNN comes along and turns it into a 24-hour news cycle. And then the internet comes and it's, you know, in the most recent tr information trumps the most relevant information. But at the same time, as much as I can see this coming, it feels like I got the rug pulled out from underneath me recently. So, I, and I find that very, very confusing. It seems like it just came out of nowhere. Well, right. Well, it's just because you know you're going to get car sick from you know reading the map while you're going at 55 miles an hour, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it's like we're still just little primitive human beings. You know, and no matter how much we can intellectualize where this is going, um, yeah, it's still. 
it still happens. Well, I'm I'm, I'm a latecomer to to the, the present shock, but I, I will say that you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier about sort of seeing this coming with you know the news cycles, you know, getting shorter and shorter. There was a moment of, of a few months ago when I just realized that you know googling something only brought up Instagram or Twitter results sort of like it was all about this moment and and you know even though they've resisted it that you have to do that extra step to do like the last 24 hours I would it, it seems that it's by default sort of becoming standard that like when you search for something the the most recent has trumped the most relevant and that and and I guess my first question is or the, the big one is is my problem that I'm not okay with that or is that the problem no oh, that's the problem it's not you it's that recency and latency are are trumping relevance and applicability. You know, Google was changing their whole thing to what Google Now is what they were calling it. That, that, that's their sort of their version of Siri. The thing, you know, Google Now will tell you what you need, when you need it, before you know you need it. It's going to predict, oh, you're moving outside, you need directions to this, you need a thing, you need a coffee, you need a thing. Ah! Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, it is, it, it, that is, uh, that is a form of present shock. And, and what is Google doing? It's kind of what it, what Google is doing to the net is kind of like what Clear Channel did to radio. You know, you'll turn on the radio where there used to be a guy sitting in a room somewhere where you live near a tower playing records, right? And you could call him and say, yeah. you know, can you put this with my girlfriend or whatever it is. And it's now, you know, in the Clear Channel universe, it's some computer 3,000 miles away playing the MP3, you know, that's supposedly, you know, local narrowcasting just to your, but it's, yeah. you know, some with some record company deal. So it's, it's not even present anymore. But it feels like they're almost responding to something, though. If you, if you sort of look at how Twitter and even the Facebook timeline has sort of become the way we process information is about the now and they've almost had to again like you still have to do that extra step if google could keep it the way they wanted it it would it seems like it would be relevant over recent and it's almost like they're pushing i mean this these forces of recent are are really what's driving the bus i, I don't, don't know if it's the forces of recent or the leading edge or the bleeding edge of the technology itself is the recent so being yeah. able to give the relevant, that's an old trick. That's a Yahoo trick. You know, they could do that, you know? <laughs> they could do that back in 1996, the, the relevancy thing. But the, the recency thing is, is, I think it's more of a, a situation of the cart leading the horse, that they're doing it because they can, okay. you know, not, not because it's, it's better. So present shock is the, is the number one, the big killer in, in this book that, uh, of, of illnesses that you, that you uh, uh, lay out for us. But there's a lot of other nasty-sounding diseases as well. It's like you found this buzzword generator and hacked it so you could <laughs> come up with like the most evil-sounding <laughs> phrases. Fractal noia, digiphrenia, apocalypto, narrative collapse. And, you know, there was times when I was reading it, I felt like, and I never do this, I never go to those self-medicate or self-diagnosing websites because it just seems like the worst idea. And then you think you have everything. And I'm like, oh, I totally have this. <laughs> I, I have that. And especially with narrative collapse. It seems right. that I've had a real inability to deal with, with this one. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can sort of walk me through this. How did I get this and how do I get rid of it? Well, I mean, each of these syndromes, you know, and I model them after kind of psychological syndromes just because it, it's kind of recognizable that way. It's like, oh, I know what phrenia, decorative, you know, schizophrenia is. So what's digiphrenia? You know, I know what, you know, this is. So narrative collapse is kind of the, the, the easiest one. It's the one that kind of occurs first. And it's, it's only a bad thing if you have the present shock kind of reaction to it rather than the presentist reaction to it. So narrative collapse is really just the inability to tell a story in a world without time. You know, without a beginning, middle, and an end, without an arc, um, the narrative collapses. But, I mean, as I see it, we've been over-narrativized for a couple of thousand years now, since Aristotle identified the great sort of male orgasm curve of, of you know, the tra tragic hero. I don't know is, if he called it that. No, he didn't. Crisis, climax, Relief, right? That's what it was. Crisis, climax, relief. So you, yours, you, is, yours is catchier. You go up the inclined plane of tension, you know, into crisis. Yeah. You, you discover a, a something and you have your reversal and recognition and then, ah, you know, now you can rest or kill yourself or do whatever you do. You know, and that, um, that 
structure has been so abused and so false, whether it's, you know, the capitalist or the communist or the, you know, the, the, the millennialist or the Christians or the advertiser or the, 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 the TV show. Um, you know, it's like again and again and again, we see that same shape, same shape. And it's like, they're lying. You know, we get to the end and it doesn't really happen. We get to retirement and there is no pension. There is no 401k. There is no heaven. It's like, wait a minute, grandma's just lying there very still. You know, it's, you know, I remember that scene in, uh, in the, the Invention of Lying? You know, <laughs> I love that. It's a movie called The Invention of Lying where, where in, lying gets invented basically because um, he... Uh, uh, I don't Ricky, know this movie. Uh, oh, it doesn't matter. But, um, but, you know, because he wants to console someone who, who sees someone else who's died. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, the sort of narrative failed. The story failed. Um, so it, the fact that now we have remote controls and DVRs and we're time-shifting our media and we have all these ways to break down narrative um, means that in some ways this is a, a positive revolt, right? We don't have to submit to the narrative-sponsored program. We don't have to listen to the news story the way it's packaged. We can break it down. We can deconstruct it like, like Burroughs did. You know, we can cut and paste our media and see what it really means. You know, of course, the, the challenge is how do you live in a world without goals, without endings, without moral conclusions? It's, it's tricky. Right, so you end up ideally, as I see it, moving into this more video gamers kind of fantasy role playing posture. So you you brought up advertisers, and and I learned from you in the yeah. mid nineties about uh, probably most of my initial early thinking about how to to think about advertising and and media. It, it was absolutely from some of your books. You know, they would make me feel terrible in that this the, the narrative structure of an ad. Right. <clears throat> and if I bought the gum, maybe I would feel less bad that you know none of the girls on the subway wanted to talk to have anything to do with me. And I was able to you know move past that. And it seems that this idea of narrative collapse is a great thing because for people who don't like advertising, for people who want them not to have this power or hold over people. But it seems that you are saying that it's not because narrative collapse actually makes it harder for things like representative democracy and it actually makes it easier for advertisers and, and like the, the narrative collapse hasn't taken away their power. Well, I mean, they move on to other techniques. You know, and advertisers tend to move on to them a lot faster than, you know, NGOs and politicians and those who mean good, um, you know, so they move into sort of more mimetic style viral things. I mean, I was writing about, you know, viral media back in the early 90s. I didn't realize it would become viral marketing. I thought it was going to be sort of the way that the counterculture could mm -hmm. launch new agendas through mimetic manipulation and stuff, you know. And That's why you came oops. up with these names for this book. You're like, you're daring them to steal exactly. these ones. Steal these, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give... Take Fractal Noia. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it, buddy. Um, no, and they already do, though. There's, I'm getting all the calls from the corporations again saying, ooh, present shock. How can we use that? You know, but you know that's that's their job. You know, it, it's keep the you know sit <laughs> here. It's like keep the keep the war alive. But when you talk about like these these uh, positive aspects of narrative collapse, like we're looking at the like video game, can can you talk about those and how perhaps they you know they don't work as well for for that's the part I'm having a hard time with, like how these new forms of post narrative storytelling seem to to be more about the non-forces of consumerism. Well, I mean, you can convey whatever values you want when you create... Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, you can create whatever values you want when you build a world that people are going to participate in. Right? So if you're going to build a, uh, a video game platform or a platform for a fantasy role-playing game, you can have the biases of that universe be towards whatever you want. So you can still give people lessons. You're just not creating a character that goes through a series of steps and your audience has to vicariously follow them through those steps. Instead, what you're going to do is create a world where the user makes, the player makes a series of choices that then lead to certain outcomes. You can still stack those choices, right? You're not creating a truly, uh, a truly absolutely free and unbiased environment, you can create a place where the more violent actions you, mm -hmm. the character takes, the more violent things are going to be done back to him. And you end up in a world with weapons and guns. But if they go peaceful, you start getting friends and sex and food and abundance. You know, so you can, you can stack the deck however you want. Or you can have people arrive at this together. And you know, you look at the, the massive uh, multiplayer online games, 
And you see folks even going into places like World of Warcraft, just forming posses and exploring the world and not even doing raids, just having a good time together and, you know, and, and building stuff. Or you see kids on, on Mine, Minesweeper building computers in Minesweeper using Minesweeper technology. It's kind of funny. They're building yeah. these sort of little mini functioning computers. So you can go, uh, you can go in any direction you want. But um, I think I still do believe you can convey values. You just convey them through process rather than through rather than through content. You know, so occupies yeah. general assembly is a learning environment, right? If you follow those rules, you learn. Oh my gosh, we're not going to get out of here until we get consensus. There's a strong agenda in there. It's just not you know the same way of of you know transmitting it like you would through a Bible story. Yeah. So you know you talked about content though, and and I would you know add to that stuff. I mean, I, I think back to, it's fascinating hearing that this goes back to 1995 because, you know, again, you know, some of the things I learned about consumerism from like books like Coercion that, what, what year was well, that? Well, that was one? already 98, 99. That was, okay, 98, 99. But again, it seems like I learned a lot about not just, you know, digital media, but also consumerism. And this might sound naive, but I, I believe that a lot, a lot of the positive things about what the internet had that the internet had disrupted consumerism. You know, thanks to the internet, people were losing interest in stuff. You know, we have people now downloading movies, or they're not like rushing out to buy the new thing. People are experiencing movies, comic books, books that they're downloading, uh, television shows, and in very, very different ways. And I used to think that, you know, the, the house full of stuff, like if we could get people to, to stop being interested in acquiring lots and lots of stuff, everything would be better. But it seems that, I, and, you know, this is one of the most fascinating things I learned in present shock is that that's actually may have not been the problem like corporations aren't screwed now that everything is available now they're not you know well they're figuring it, it out <laughs> you know so you know you get a company like uh uh you know netflix and i just you know i love uh, molly steenson's analysis of this you know that that netflix uses predictive analysis and it's uh uh you know, big data to figure out, oh, people who like Kevin Spacey happen to also like David Fincher, and they like political intrigue, so yeah. let's manufacture this program for them. But the beauty of it is, you know, you get it whenever you want. They put out a whole season of uh, House of Cards at one time, and you can get it now, right? So you get it now when you want it. What you lose is that kind of collective watching, you can't go to work the next day and say, oh, did you see House of Cards last night? And it'd be like, yeah, well, which episode? You know, I'm up to seven. Yeah. What are you on? And everybody's a kind of walking spoiler. But is it that what you're warning us against? It seems like it's what you're really warning us against is that they're finding ways to monetize these experiences. They're taking these things that used to be communal and experiential, and they're actually like, like they can't sell us the stuff anymore, but they're turning out how to turn the meat. They're figuring out how to turn the meter on. Like that's to me what... I found so fascinating. Well, you know, er any time you leave the real world, you are no longer on home turf, right? Any time you go into the virtual world, you know, it's funny because that was the thing. In 1994, I experienced the net as the home turf of the counterculture, and the real world is the corporate landscape. <laughs> and now I experience the real world as the counterculture haven and the net is the corporate place, because that's where the computers are, that's mm. where the corporations are, that's where they live, is in that virtual space. So, you know, every time that you do something with another person in real time, um, you're decommodifying yourself, right? You're moving out of their sphere, the meter is off. You know, and that's just so radical. You know, the, the most radical thing you can do is play cards with somebody, you know, is do something that doesn't involve buying or selling or, or, or you know, key to it for me is, use, is using the dimension of time as a way of measuring whether you're in real time or in digital time, whether you're in the sort of kairos, as the Greeks would call it, of human timing and engagement and the social engagement of real human time, or whether you are in the artificial kind of digitally, um, digitally discrete time um, of the internet. Yeah, you know, being at WFMU, Douglas, I, I, I'm privy to a lot of conversations about 
analog versus digital, and usually it has to do with turntables and MP3 players, or maybe you know digital film or digital video versus you know film. I think this is the first time I've 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 uh, sat through a conversation about digital clocks versus analog clocks. Can you sort of lay out like how yeah, well, so how this works same. for you and where it goes? I mean, it's all the same. I mean, if you really want to know the origins of this book, it's when I was you know 11 years old and my dad replaced my analog alarm clock with a digital alarm clock. You know, and I used to sit there with the analog clock watching the second hand go through the minute, you know, the beginning of the minute, the middle of the minute, the end. Oh, we're in a new minute. It was a sense of continuity. And then he throws in the digital clock and now it's the old sort of train sign kind where the little numbers flip down and I would just sit there poised. It's 401, 401, 401, bam! 402, 402. So time changed from being this continuous analog event to being a discrete digital event that moved from thing poised moment to poised moment to poised moment and same thing when when your analog lps are replaced by digital ones all of a sudden there's this coldness it's not really affecting your body quite the same way everything's cut off at you know at 20,000 cycles oh you know and the audiophiles will say you know the bad ones will say oh there's no difference you can't really hear the difference blah, blah, blah. you can feel the difference the air moves around in the room differently it's not the same thing i'm not saying it's worse it's different. It's discreet. Yeah. It's broken up. Go to a room of people that don't have digital devices. They're in the room together. Go into a room where everybody's got their head in the iPad. They are discreet, separate beings. There is, this sounds new age, but it's real. There is a social reality. What keeps you alive yeah. is your connections to other people in real space. Your body's in sync, developing rapport, getting mirror neurons, oxytocin releasing, throwing dopamine on there. You don't get it. You don't get it the same way when you're sitting with your eyes glued to an individual MP3. You know, it's good to see how passionate you are about this in person. But, you know, it seems to me there's a real danger in talking about those issues that you just brought up because you can come off sounding like the cranky old guy. Kids, get off my Internet! Or even worse, you know, this earnest, uh, new-agey old guy. Like, slow down, kids. You're, you're moving too fast. And I'm, I'm really curious. Were you conscious of this when you set out to do this, that there, this was, in fact, a, a danger? Um, I understood that that's... Uh, uh, well, you didn't want to sound like one of those guys. I mean, no, but, you know, being in the counterculture is always going to be dangerous, right? So the way that they can try to make someone who's countercultural feel bad today, the way that they, meaning the corporate evil conglomerate yuckies, is by saying, oh, if you start talking about that, you're going to sound out of sync. You're going to sound uncool, man. Come on. You're cool. Talk about Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus. Why that's okay. You kid can watch Victorious and then go to Justice and buy some cool stuff. Market to tweens. Come on, man. You know, and it's like, you know, screw y'all. You know, you know, am I, I won't even say it. I'll, I'll keep the air clean. But, but, you know, screw that. It's, it's a matter of maintaining your agency. I am, I'm not a technophobe. I'm a techno geek. I got all the stuff. I love it. I'm talking about pushing through technology and learning how to use it. Sure, sure. But you you're know, one I'm of the programmer be program guy. But, you know, coming back to this analog time versus digital time, yeah. it's, you know, it seems that that, it really spells out the way you spell that out is by sort of pointing this finger at like what we've become and it's not like from an outsider i think that i feel no, that it's from an you insider. have your own uh woes yeah. and tear you know you talk about being so distracted writing this book more so than any right. other book but the thing is written. you know i'm not saying that analog time was better and digital time is worse i'm saying analog time if anything, analog time was just as bad in its own way. What we're really okay. looking at is an age-old battle between Kronos, time of the clock, and Kairos, which is human time or timing. Yeah. Right? You know, what time is it? It's 12.02. What's timing? What's the best time to tell dad you crashed the car? Right? <laughs> After he had his drink, before he opened the bills. Right? But that goes way back. You know, the invention of text took us out of Kairos, out of timing into calendrical time and messianic time and human history and all that. The invention of the clock threw us into the industrial age when time became money, when we'd make stuff and instead of being paid for the stuff we made, we were being paid for the hours we put in. That was disjointing and terrible. That's part of what led to cancer rates that we have, is shift mm -hmm. work and all that. Digital time 
is an opportunity, I thought, to liberate from that sort of industrial age, time is money, uh, uh, you know, clock-based hell, but instead we've used it to kind of amplify the industrial age. I'm really interested to see what if the digital age exposes the fact that Kronos is, is a symbol system, that Kronos isn't real, that Kronos is a way of organizing people, but it's not the actual yeah. time in which we live. It seems that in some of the, the work you put into thinking about different kinds of time, uh -huh. you kind of came to the conclusion that humans might not be built for digital time. Like our bodies might our not bodies are, be are, built are, no, for it. They're not built for digital time. They're not even really built for analog time. I mean, we had, what, a good, what, what you, like, we had a thousand years to adjust to analog time and to decide that the human body is like a machine and the heart's like, a, like the clock in the middle ticking. And the be I mean, so we, we've adjusted to analog time. It wasn't so hard because at least analog time was about breaking up the day into units. We understood that an hour was a 24th of the of the day cycle, right? When you look at a clock, it's these little it's a pie chart basically of a day. When you look at a digital clock, these are not, it's not a pie chart of a day. These are discrete durations, right? A digital minute is an absolute duration of itself. It's a pulse, right? Just floating there. So it no longer has that sense of connection to the organic. While that's terrifying on the one hand, this is what Baudrillard was talking about. You have the thing, right, which is time. You have the symbol of the thing, which is the clock. And now you have the, the, the simulacra, the, 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 the sort of the symbol that, that you end up with, the, the that, that, that rises from matter itself, which is digital time. But it's also the opportunity then to go, oh my gosh, this whole time thing is just a symbol system. So you can restore now your connection to, to the real one. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and I guess that sounds, you know, new agey, but it shouldn't. It should sound, if anything, it should sound um, scientific and comforting. You, you kind of point out, though, uh, by talking about the Real Housewives television show, that you, you, you seem to recoil in horror to suggest that we might not be built for digital time, but we're probably going to try to remake ourselves to be built for it. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, I mean, once you get the ability, right? the seeming ability to control time, um, you're going to do... Or a delusion. Or delusion, right. What you're going to do, a lot of people anyway, is amplify whatever the current cultural obsessions are through your new tool, right? So, you know, we got computers, and what did guys want to do? How do I kill with it? How do I with it, right? That was basically what people did, right? So we're going to get drones and porn. You know, it's like there's this sort of two sort of normal extremes that you expect. So once you start getting people thinking, I'm going to manipulate time, you know, I... It was the it was you know the moment I actually decided to start this book. When was when I was watching Real Housewives of Orange County with my wife, and I saw you know a little I, casual like you know decompressed time. At yeah, the yeah, Rush no, she doesn't household. watches this at night. It, it does. It calms her down. Um, and we were watching uh, uh, we're watching this thing, and I realized, oh my god, you know these women, all they. This entire show is about communication snafus, about misunderstandings. And why are they having so many misunderstandings? It's because their faces are locked in a single smile, a frozen smile. They tried to lock in their face at age 29, you know, with Botox and surgery. And in the process, they kind of paralyzed their faces. They're frozen in time. So by locking in that 29-year-old moment, unsuccessfully, I might add, they made themselves unavailable to the actual moment that they were living in. So one of them says, oh, you know, my daughter's being tested for cancer today. And the other one goes, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, while her face is frozen in a smile. And the first one then says to the camera, you know, she said she was sorry, but I don't think she was really sorry. And it's because her body could not actively communicate sorrow when her face was locked, you know, locked in that horrible smile. Yeah. And that's really sort of the, the it's, it's a great uh, uh, kind of, analogy for what for for the sort of uh uh you know fleeting and, and failing ability we have to manipulate time for real yes but it also seems that it's an example of how we're just going to do it anyways like we we met this won't be successful but we are all going to sign up as a society to, to well, at least die trying well are we i don't know i mean you know that's I, a pessimist I always, in me i, but, I mean back, i took that as an example of i that. always look back to the you know the greatest reality show of all time the first and true one you know cops 
you know, as the what you're going to do when they come for you, you know, and after years of watching cops, I know what to do when they come for me, right? I mean, you get to, yes, sir, officer, sir, yes, sir, sir. Yeah. You know, my hands are down, I'm on the splayed. I'm not going to get hurt when I get arrested. I am going to be so cooperative, no matter how high or drunk or whatever, say nothing, conform, you know, go belly up, beta. You know, you know that. So when you look at the Real Housewives and you see that, I think we get the lesson. I think we see, oh my God, you know, look how ugly these people are. You know, look how sad their lives are. Look at their giant houses and their tiny dogs and their, you know, overly stretched out boobs. And you realize, wow, you know, there's such, I'm happy to grow old. I'm happy to be in the moment I'm in, you know. It's really funny because now I guess I am old, right? I'm old. Um, you know, You're someone not looked old. at me and you know, because I'm like 51. Philip Roth I, just turned 80. Well, there you go. That's old. No, it's not even that old. But you know, someone looked at me and said, Oh, you look good for 51. And you know, and I realized at the last moment, you know, that's actually ageist. What does that mean to look good for 51? This is 51. This is what 51 looks like. I don't look good for it, I don't look yeah. bad. I just look it. This is it. I'm here. Um you know, or someone, you know, sometimes kids will hear me and they'll say, oh, he's only talking like that because he's from another generation and doesn't yeah. get the internet. It's like, dude, I was there for the founding of the friggin' internet, man. You know, I was at the, where we popped the champagne cork and got the thing going. Um, you know, it's like, no, you know, you don't get the net because you were raised with the yeah. net and you, you accept it as a given, as a given circumstance. So I, I guess you really weren't ever m worried about sounding like the, the cranky old guy or the, you know, or the I new was, age guy. Uh, it's funny. I, I didn't want to come off negative, right? So, you know, program review program, the book I wrote right before present shock, I saw it as an extremely positive book. Because here I am saying, if you understand the biases yeah. of the digital landscape, this thing can be the next stage of human civilization. If you don't, of course, you're going to be a program zombie. But here you can do it. You can understand these biases. And even if you're not going to learn to program and not going to learn anything, just read this tiny little book and learn these sort of biases and think critically about this space. And yeah, when high school classes would read it, not college so much, but high school classes, and the teachers would have them send me, I don't know why they do this, everyone send Douglas Rushkoff an email with your response to his book. They'd be like, well, I think you only talk like this because you're an old man and you don't realize how fun and great Facebook is. You know, yeah. So there's kids who basically don't understand what big data is and what's being predicted and how all that works. Um, and I was very conscious of that when I was starting Present Shock, that the idea um, of uh, criticizing certain aspects of digital culture um, or nowness itself yeah. could be looked at as... Uh, uh, you know, as the Kirkus reviewer said, the Kirkus reviewer, he didn't really read the book. He read, you know, the first, you could tell. He read the first 30 pages and then said, oh, this is one of those get off my lawn Yeah, get off books. my internet. Get off my lawn, he said. Um, you know, it's going to be fine with the get off my lawn crowd, but, you know, it won't get a wider audience. It's like, well, buddy, just read the damn book, you know, yeah. before you review it. Or just don't review it, which is fine, too. You know, and Daily Beast just did one like that. So I've gotten so far two like negative reviews that are saying, oh, this is an angry guy. And it's like, no, what I'm saying is that, that the, the possibility of using the atemporal bias of digital technology, the possibility of using this stuff to totally overturn the corporate hegemony, to, to, re, uh, uh, to, to kind of reify the sort of sustainability, Jones, to, to promote a much more sort of occupy version of reality than, you know, Coke's view of reality. It's still right here, right mm -hmm. at our fingertips. Um, that to me is not old man. You know, that's um, uh, in the bad way anyway. Um, but maybe it takes an old man to, to get that. Or, or you know, there, there's something, you know, we, we talk about this generation of millennials that has sort of grown up digital, born digital was, you know, the famous book that the, the, the Berkman Center put out. But, you know, it struck me reading this book that there might actually be something to this divide in that when you think about this now, this tyranny of the now. In other words, you and I grew up in an era where we remember relevant versus recent. Right. And this new generation actually might not. But the way they can uh, restore their, their sensors, 
You know, there's sensory processing mechanisms. It's funny that that's the big disease of the day, right? Sensory processing disorders from Asperger's and yeah. autism and all that. It's really the inability to just engage, you know, eye to eye and to make sense of the social, um, you know, the social reality um, and the relevance. You know, it's yeah. basically relevance. Every little thing looks as relevant. All every every sound coming in is as relevant. There's no filters. There's no, you know, that's the disease of the moment. That's the syndrome. Yeah. You know, that's a form of present shock. The the key to living in this era of um, sort of infinitely tight feedback loops, where everything is like the screech of a microphone in 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 uh, uh, its incomprehensible. Uh, uh, kind of expression is to be able to do pattern recognition, yes. soften your gaze and see how things are like other things without drawing equivalencies, right? Without saying this is that, is that, is that. You know, when you don't have time, you can't make sense of the world through cause and effect logic. This seems to tie into fractal noia, which is uh, uh, something, I'd, you know, another one of the syndromes that you lay out, which is definitely one I don't want to have as well. Can can you know? I don't want to be the guy on the subway, ladies and gentlemen. I'm I'm sorry to take up some of your time, but I'm suffering from fractal noia. <laughs> can you please spare a little change? What 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 is fractal noia, and how do I how do I not get that? You know, fractal noia is kind of a few things that you know. It depends who I'm trying to explain it to. You know, uh, uh, this is kind of an advanced audience because they're on FMU, so they know what fractals are. You know, and the beauty of fractals is that they have these kind of self-similar shapes, and mm-hmm. no matter what level of granularity you go. So there's this sort of, oh, this shape is like that one, it's like that one, it's like that one. Um, the, the beauty is also the peril, though, is that you equate one shape with another. Say, so this is that, is that, that it's actually the same on all levels. It's not the same, it's just mirroring. It's, it's self-similar. There's, there's nuances, there's a rhythm kind of to it. Um, when you're in recency instead of relevancy, when everything is recency, you try to make sense almost with a picture of the way things are right now. And when you're making sense of the world through a picture, the only way to, 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 to do it is to draw connections between things. This thing's connected to that, connected to that. You draw lines through the data, just the way that, that big data um, analysts draw lines through the populations in the static still yeah. map they have. When you draw connections between too many things, you end up paranoid. That's why, I mean, I love listening to it. I listen to those, you know, the, the coast-to-coast shows all the time. I mean, since the days of Art Bell. And you listen, I, I, I wrote about this one woman who was, you know, talking about how the, the tsunami in Japan, which destroyed the nuclear reactors, was actually caused by the harp station in Alaska, and that we did it to them because they didn't sign a trade agreement, and we used the chemtrail vapors from airplanes in order to yeah. activate the harp thing. And it's just like, wow, I understand why she's doing that. It's because if you've got to make sense of things in the moment, you're going to draw connections between things that just... Aren't connected. Yeah, but that seems like an extreme. I mean, I, <laughs> I would, you know, I, I saw you talk about this book. I think you told me it was the first uh, public presentation you did about this a few weeks ago, and it was great. You you started off with these slides about just some things you had seen on the train on the way into New York, and they were like clocks and images of time, and it was like you doing this pattern recognition. Uh-huh. And it seems that you know the 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 late night paranoid. Uh, uh, radio caller is perhaps like the extreme, but there is this, you know, uh, absolute need for us to, in an era of narrative collapse, to see patterns. Yeah, and it's fun and it it's awesome. Fun. And it's real though. Seeing patterns is one thing. Drawing equivalencies is where it goes off the edge. So, right, I think, you know, on the way to that talk, it was for Web Visions, I was thinking, God, is this book re- relevant? I was actually wondering, is this relevant or is it, re- is it really happening now? And I start looking around the subway car, one subway car, and there was like six different signs that were like, we are in the moment, we are up to now, we are there before you are, this is the instant, you are in the moment. I mean, it was like all these different ads about being now, here, instant, always on, we are there before you are. And um, I snapped pictures of them, and that's not to say, you know, the people at the MTA are trying to make sure. I'm not ascribing a character. I'm not saying there's someone behind it. I'm not putting it back in storyland, which is the danger. I'm doing true pattern recognition, which is saying, 
I can read the writing on the wall, not, oh, someone's writing this on the wall. So I wanted to do the same thing as I got on the train to come up to visit you here in Hastings on the Hudson this afternoon. I was, I was kind of had my eyes open and I walked all the way to the front door here and I was like, oh, I didn't see anything. And then right across the street, right across the street above that house, art transcends time. And it was amazing, right as I knocked on the door thinking I wouldn't find a pattern. But it seems that you're really warning us about the dangers of, of seeing too much in these patterns. I'm trying to help people um, kind of train themselves in the, in the softer sciences of lateral thinking, you know, and, and being able you know, to do, it was what McLuhan really told us we were going to have to do, is to be able to do pattern recognition. And it's really uh, uh, something that Easterners are a lot better at than Westerners. I don't mean New Yorkers. I mean, like, you know, Japan and China East. Um, because they, they, you know, when you do experiments on, on the way people look at pictures, you know, uh, an American will say, oh, that's a picture of a cow. Whereas someone from China will say, oh, that's a picture of a pasture. Right? So they see the background. They see the context more than they mm -hmm. see the subject. And our subject orientation worked really well for the kind of industrial age um, drive towards, uh, uh, you know, power and ego and growth and all that. Um, it, it, it was great, a great tool for the psychoanalyst in understanding a person's personal narrative over time and their sub, not just to have a self, but you also have a subconscious behind that self. Um, it doesn't work as we move into the fractal, as we move into this more Why collective. Um, because it's less personal, what we're going into now. It's not that we still don't have personal time. We should have personal time, contemplation, solo, and all that. But right now, we're spending so much time alone, online, without ourselves, even present. Now, we're spending a lot of solo time, but it's not contemplative time. It's solo chasing whatever time. I think we have enough alone. I think what we need to do is reinstate the social reality, because the social reality, the social organism actually is uh, uh, the, the, the healthiest place for a human to reside. You uh -huh. know, if we want to branch out from there, that's okay, but we kind of need that, you need that as a, as a base. So you took yourself off Facebook right before the book came out, which I thought was amazing because I've been off for about a year now, and it seems to me that the only reason you would possibly remain on Facebook is if you had a book or a movie. I know. Out That's why I went promote. off before it. Bold move, Mr. Rushkoff. Yeah. I, li I like that. Oh, it. thank you. Um, for really, for me, it was more the idea of soliciting a like from another person is asking them to be vulnerable yeah. to something that. I don't know what them liking me is going to expose them to. And my, my CNN piece where I left there, I compared Facebook to a Tupperware party. That basically what it's doing is exploiting human interaction in order to extract value from it. You know, and getting people to sell their friends to each other and to companies and all. That's not... Um, it's it's not genuinely fun. First off, and it's and it's it's ultimately it's disempowering, and that felt inappropriate for me as someone who's arguing for exercising agency yeah. online. I'm not saying be afraid. I'm saying be in charge, and if I can't be in charge of my digital uh, expression, then I'm not going to make yeah. it, and I'm going to live and. Facebook is not the internet. I haven't left the net. So many people think I've gone offline because all they know is Facebook. That's reason enough to leave Facebook, to yeah. say, as an example, no, there's this internet out there. But how is it that this tyranny of the now sort of accelerates this issue of, of us losing our agency? Like, what is it about this nowness or this, this move towards recency that, that makes this more of an important issue for us to pay attention to. Well, because we're so busy trying to keep up with our devices, with every ping, we kind of, um, we really raise our cortisol levels, you know, at, at kind of at all times. We're strapped in every time somebody sends you a photo or updates their profile or puts something on your wall or whatever, you're getting vibrated, you know, it's, it's hmm. the, it's the, the lifestyle of a 911 operator or an air traffic controller. You're living in a constant state of emergency where things can somehow break in, you know, at any moment. That's not 
a a it's not it's a fine to do it for a few hours a day as your job, but it's not a way to move through life. No. Right? I remember, you know, it's like the operator, you remember I'd be on the phone or when I was a little kid, it's like the operator's breaking in. The operator says it's an emergency. You know, and it's because grandma has to go to the hospital or something, right? The operator would break in. You know, and now something can break in, call waiting whenever. It's just whenever. It's like we're in this constant state of emergency. And believe me, even if you think you're a digital native or something like that, you know, we've evolved over a couple of hundred thousand years. You don't evolve that quickly to be suddenly uh, existing on a different uh, neural level. Yeah, but when you talk about our hearts actually not being able to function in digital time or our bodies actually falling apart thanks to the tyranny of the now, it really highlights what seems to me the, the, the impossible negative effects of this uh, moment of presentism, and you 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 make a strong point of saying it's both it's like a double-edged sword. There's a there's a real opportunity for us, and there's also real dangers. And it seems like you don't want to say which one is. It's both. You seem like you're really determined to say it's both. I am not a futurist. I am a presentist, right? So I can tell us where we're at, and I think it's so much healthier, mm -hmm. even that rather than where we're going. I think we are in charge of where we're going, you know? And right now, I feel like we are um, allowing the, the, you know, the really the, the, the time is money accelerating agenda of the industrial age to shape the way we use our digital technologies so that we are, you know, off center and chasing our tails. And we, we, can just as easily, um, you know, choose a, a, a somewhat more organic option. And I do see signs of that, you know, whether it's in Occupy or peer-to-peer -peer currencies or community-supported agriculture or the focus on the local or radio, you know, and, and I, I, I do see signs of that. Um, am I optimistic? No, I am not optimistic. <laughs> I really, I really do not believe a majority of humanity is going to make it out of the industrial revolution i think we will have we have already set in motion some awfully destructive thing yeah. that'll either be ebola or you know you know barium sulfate in the oceans turning into a precipitate or something and you know and people with gene number 36 ab will somehow magically survive it, you know, because they're radiation resistant or whatever it is, or they can eat poison fish and not die. And, you know, the other 8 billion people will die. You know, I think there'll be continuity. I think civilization will go on. But, but really awful stuff happens, you know, plagues and nastiness. And we are not um, engaging with our world in a way that maximizes the probability of a smooth transition yeah. into the next phase. But, but you know, the, the, apocalypt, uh, the apocalyptic scenario aside, I do think that a lot of people are going to come to this book, I mean, myself included, with looking at, you know, these two scenarios that you lay out, this opportunity and this warning, but what we're really kind of, really desperately in search of are some help, is some help. I mean, I think that, and you kind of lay out that, that you don't feel like that's your role here. But like, where, and if we can't go to Douglas Rushkoff to get well, it, where, where do I we do. find I it? I mean, in every chapter, I offer solutions, right? I offer yeah, But, but half-heartedly, like, you really don't want to, you, you seem like to be adamant I don't that you don't want to so, do that. I don't want to be so prescriptive because, you know, being an authority figure offering prescriptions is the old way. What I'm trying to do is suggest to people that they do have the impulse in them, that they do have the ability to listen and navigate. So, you know, one thing I tell people to do is all right, start paying attention to the moon and understand that these are the four weeks of the moon. You're going to go through, you know, acetylcholine, then serotonin, then dopamine, then norepinephrine. That's one, and it's like four paragraphs in the book to say, actually do this. Look at the first phase. And understand this is going to be a good week for meeting people. This is going to be a good week for working. This one's going to be a good week for partying. And this one's going to be a good week for doing structural analysis. If you do just that, it will change the entire fabric 
of your existence. Just that. So why give 100,000 suggestions? I talk about distinguish between stack media and flow media. Don't try to keep up with Twitter, dip in and understand that's a flow, and look at other right. things like stack. Set aside the time to actually read the book. You know, so in each chapter, there's different things. You know, For businesses, I even say, understand that there's no such thing as feedback and iteration anymore. It's all just iteration. There's all just cause and effect. It's all just, it's so tight. You can't do a, there's no such thing as a marketing plan because your people are marketing back to you, your marketing plan before you put it out. Don't even look at that anymore. Or just try to be honest. You know, just try to actually make your processes something that you're proud of, rather than have a brand mythology that's. Ever so there's a ton of actual. Oh, I know there is advice in there. Even just listening to you rail that off, yeah. it seems that that's not what you're mostly interested in. And I guess so. The last question, then, I want to end up with is: so what? If it's not that, what is it that you want us to end with here? And I want to end. I want people to actually buy my book. How about that? Um, I really do. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> no, I do. I do. I want them to, and if they can't buy it, I want them to steal it and read it. You know, I want them to read it. I want them to take five, six hours of their life with me, yeah. right? And in doing so, they've taken five or six hours of their life. That is a revolutionary act in itself. I mean, the most radical thing about Present Shock is that I wrote it as a book and not as a list of bullet, you know, yeah. bullet points on, on Twitter. No, that's uh, to say that there's something that can really best be transmitted through this personal curled up experience with text. Um, yeah, is, no, one, no one believes that anymore. Well, tough. <laughs> you know, I do. I know. I do. I think that's the best way to transmit this. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. I, I do mean, too, but uh, and I think radio's it, a radio's a good second. Radio's certainly better than TV because radio is is hot media. You know, radio is is intimate, so people understand this. I mean, yeah. It, it, what do I want people to do? Join a community supported agriculture group. That will start the whole thing in motion. That alone, you know, and try to join one where you're allowed to give a little bit of your time rather than just money. Yeah. Right. S create a local favor bank. Invest in a local business rather than in the stock exchange. You know, insource rather than outsource what you're doing. You know, be aware of what time it is during the day. Look at the sun. Take a walk. Yeah. Look in someone's eyes today. You know, put your phone away when you're going to dinner with somebody. Uh, sit with someone in a room where you promise for five minutes, just five minutes a day, you're not going to answer any vibration, tweet, or use digital media. Five minutes a day. Well, I want to wrap this up, but you know, I'm, I don't think I'm as pessimistic as, as you are. I might, I might, because of, See, of individuals go. like you out it, there in the world. But also, maybe I'm just suffering from fractal noia. But I think that that seeing that sign across the street from your door, you know, that it, it says to me that the bad people just can't win. Art will yeah. always transcend. But there time. you go. I mean, and that's why where President Chuck does get pessimistic. That's why it does. It's because it pushes people to that. You know, in other words, if I can go, it's okay. I've looked in the face of the abyss, and I have survived. <laughs> right? It's like with Terrence McKenna. It's like if he could trip that hard for that long, it means that whatever I'm doing on this little half a tab of acid is really not that significant. <laughs> I'm going to make it through. Right? And it's sort of that. It's like I have stared into the face of the temporal abyss, and I have come back, and I am connected to the underlying cycles that inform our reality. And everyone else can do that, too. Well, let's leave it at that. Uh, Douglas Rushkoff, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Well, thank you for your time.